Well, the title of my Easter sermon is two words, Jesus wins. And one of the things I love about preaching on Easter is I don't have to debate all week long about what the sermon's going to be called. It's, it's pretty much decided beforehand every single year because that is the headline of the Easter story. And it will be right behind me on the screen. If you're in this room, it will be right behind you. I'll be staring at it all day long if you haven't seen. Beautiful in big letters. Can't miss it. It's on the roof of our building. So we've, we've told many people this, but if you're new, this building is in the flight path into the Auburn airport. So when people land in Auburn, they fly directly over this building. So we put Jesus wins in huge letters on the roof of our church because we want the pilots to know the headline of the human story reads like this, Jesus wins. This is what Easter is all about. His victory over death 2000 years ago is not just a marker in history that we put a headline on though. It is an invitation for you and I to participate in his death, burial, and resurrection. So some people might be here and be like, what's the big deal about a guy rising from the dead, even if he did? And some people here are like, I don't even buy into that, and we'll get to that later on in this sermon. But even if he did, what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for all of these Christians who are gathered by the billions today to celebrate this moment? And the Bible teaches something called union with Christ. It's where by grace through faith, you and I are united in the journey of Jesus. Jesus, that with his death, we too died. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ and the life I live in the body, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. His death is the end of our old life. His burial is the burial of who we used to be. And his resurrection is our invitation into the newness of life. But Jesus wins doesn't become the headline of your story until you decide for yourself that Jesus is better than any other option you have to live for. So our dream as a church and agenda, if we have one today, is not that you have a nice Easter in a nice building or at whatever location you're at that you enjoy the stream and you got a good message from it. Our agenda today is that you would have an encounter with Jesus and decide that living for him is better than any other option you have for your life. Because it's one thing to intellectually agree, oh yeah, Jesus wins. That is the headline of human history. That is the biggest thing that has ever happened in human history. Yeah, that's great that you agree with that in your mind, but the bigger step is that in your heart, you have come to know by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus wins my story, my affection, my attention, and I'll drop everything to follow him. I know we got a lot of different situations in the room today and a lot of different seasons of life, but I truly believe that where the Holy Spirit is on the move, people see and experience in a fresh way, he's better. That phrase we were singing over and over again, oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. I sang that at the top of my lungs as a middle school student who had no idea what the future was going to hold. But I remember the Holy Spirit opening my eyes to see Jesus as better. And with the same conviction and joy as I was singing as a seventh grader, I'm telling you at 34 years old, Jesus is better and Jesus is worth it. And as we open the word of God, we're going to look in an unlikely place for that message to, to come out of the woodwork. But I truly believe God is going to do something special as we open his word and people are going to see it for themselves. Did you bring your Bible to ACC on Easter Sunday at all of our locations? If you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up, hold it up in the mezzanine and overflow, hold it up in the lobby, hold them up high. Somebody say, I love my Bible. Look at somebody who didn't bring one. Say, you should have brought your Bible. Shame. I'm just kidding. Turn with me 
to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you're like, whoa, we're saying that to all the people who are visiting? Clearly, this is not a seeker church. Um, Acts chapter 2, just kidding, we're so glad you're here. Acts chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 22. We've been in a series on the book of Acts that tells the story of the early church. What you need to know about Acts is that it was written by a Gentile physician named Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as two volumes of the same story. And the goal behind his writing is to connect the redemptive story of God from Old Testament to New Testament. So Luke will reach back to a lot of themes from Israel's history to a lot of the patriarchs to connect the dots of what does this Jewish rabbi who died on a cross and they're saying he rose from the dead, what does that have to do with the story God has been writing through the nation of Israel the entire time? And last week we talked about Pentecost where the Holy Spirit goes out. This is 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead and the Spirit of God is now indwelling believers, which means Jesus, is, his body is not just limited in one physical space, but his life is now spread out across all believers who by grace through faith give their life to him. They are indwelled and empowered with the very power that rose Jesus from the dead. And when this happens, craziness breaks out. They all start speaking different languages that they couldn't speak before. There's fire, there's wind. And it gets so crazy that the people who are in Jerusalem at a festival celebrating notice that something's happening at this house and these people are filled with the Holy Spirit and they literally say, oh, they're drunk, they're wasted. Like they're out of their mind. That's what it sounds like sometimes when the Holy Spirit breaks out. And Peter, who denied Jesus 50 days earlier, stands up and gives his greatest sermon ever. Just evidence that God can do a lot in a short amount of time. And when he stands up, he brilliantly begins his sermon like this. No, we're not wasted. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. I love that. Great opening line, Peter. He's like, maybe you could say that if it was later. I'm just kidding. He's like, no, 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 no. That's not what it is. And what he does is he starts unpacking passages from the Old Testament and connecting them and saying, this has been God's story the entire time. So you can go back to last week. On Palm Sunday, we talked about the passage in Joel, but now he's going to give us even more info. I'm going to read a large chunk of scripture, and then we're going to talk about the whole thing, so try to focus in. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22, if you're there, say I'm there. Here we go. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. See, you're like, why are we reading Acts at Easter? This is why, this is such a good Easter passage. And as we're reading it, you're gonna be like, it's almost like you planned to land here on Easter. I did. Keep reading. Verse 25, this is crazy. David said about him, so now he's quoting Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. 
You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. We're going to pause right there and just live in that passage. Everybody look up here, come up for air. I know that's a lot to take in. One of the greatest sermons ever preached, remember the context. Peter is explaining what in the world is happening as the Holy Spirit goes out and indwells believers. And he says that Jesus, who you know, he was doing signs and wonders and all kinds of miracles, but you still pulled the trigger on wanting him to be crucified. Here's what God has done. According to his foreknowledge, he actually used the fact that he was murdered by wicked men to save humanity. You know, it's possible for there to be massive amounts of suffering and evil chosen by the free will of humanity and for God to be completely sovereign over the whole story and use everything for his glory and for your good. If God can use the murder of his son for the salvation of billions, he can use your pain. He can use whatever you're sitting in today. And he's so sovereign over the whole story that Peter's able to reach back into the Old Testament and go, hey, remember this, remember this, remember this? And he reaches back to David in Psalm 16. He's like, no, 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 you guys know this. Remember David in Psalm 16 when he was like, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one see decay. Peter's like, that's not true about David. David died and his body did decay. So who's he talking about, guys? He has to be talking about one of his descendants. He has to be prophetically seeing into what was to come because that can't be true about him. But Jesus, who is the son of David, did not decay in his grave, but came out on a Sunday. He's opening their eyes to the plan of God. He's going, and Jesus is not in the tomb. He's exalted to the right hand of God and the Holy Spirit is being poured out in real time as you're seeing and hearing. And then he quotes David again, Psalm 110. And he says, you remember where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's like, why does David say the Lord said to my Lord? That's a very weird phrase. The reason why Peter pointed that out is because Jesus brought that up in Matthew 22 when he was debating with the Pharisees and he turned to them and he was like, hey, when David said the Lord said to my Lord, 
if the son of David is the Messiah, why does David call his son Lord? Jesus is pointing out that yes, the Messiah is the son of David, but David is subordinate to the Messiah. Jesus is establishing that this has been God's plan all along. What's the plan? To make this Jesus who is crucified both Lord and Christ. Those two titles are massively important when you think about what you believe about Jesus because they literally tell whether or not you are a Christ follower or not. To say Jesus is Lord is not a statement that you belong to a religion called Christianity. To say Jesus is Lord means that you believe that Jesus is Yahweh. That word Yahweh is the word for the Hebrew God of the Old Testament. When you said Jesus is Lord 2,000 years ago, that was a massive statement. That was a, hey, this God who is running this whole story through these pages, he became a human and that's him. I believe that Jesus is God and Messiah. Messiah is the word Christos. It means anointed one. It means that the promised one who is coming to deliver Israel. But if Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, what does that have to do with the rest of the world? The plan was from the beginning of the story that God would bless a nation through Abraham in order to be a blessing to all nations. Peter is opening their eyes in this moment to see, you didn't see this coming, but this was the plan all along. God has not veered from where he was going the whole time. And now he has exalted him to his right hand and made him Lord and Messiah. And then watch this. Everybody look up here. Don't miss this. Peter just stops after making that point. And it says the people were cut to the heart and had their own response. In fact, I want you to read it. Go to verse 37. It says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles. That phrase, cut to the heart, is, this is just brilliant writing. Luke borrowed that phrase from Homer who wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad. Anybody read that in like 10th grade lit? Um, you guys remember this? And he borrowed that from a phrase that Homer made up about horses' hooves hitting dirt. It's like the sound of massive impact. When he says they were cut to the heart, it means this message landed in a powerful way and the people had to do something. And they literally said, brothers, what shall we do? Now, I've been preaching for about a decade now. I have never once had the crowd interrupt my sermon so convicted that they were like, hey, can you just stop? What are we supposed to do? Because everything you're saying is true and we need to know what to do. Peter doesn't even get to his points at the end of his sermon. I don't even think he had any, so he's a way better preacher than I am. But he's like, okay, you guys are already ready for what you're supposed to do. When the Spirit of God convicts you, he doesn't just convict you and, and guilt you, moves you to action. And the people are going, we got to do something with what we are hearing right now. And Peter immediately has an answer for them. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Peter says, here's what you're supposed to do if this is landing on you. Repent and be baptized. What, what does repent mean? It means to be headed in a direction and because of what's happening in your heart, you turn and go the other way. This is what it means to be saved by Jesus. For all of us who grew up hearing that to become a Christian is to recite a prayer word for word, we need to read our Bibles. And guys, I recited the prayer. Vacation Bible School, anybody? Three-step prayer, ABCs? Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Commit your life to him. 
It's not, it's not bad. Like, I'm still a Christian. It, clearly it worked. But I, I, like, I, I don't know why we're explaining Christianity like this. The message is still the same. It is an R word, and it's not recite the prayer. It's repent of your sins. Turn. Because you're headed this way, there's forgiveness available this way, but you have to actively make that turn and go, I don't want this misery. I don't want it to be up to me whether or not I'm gonna live forever. I don't wanna continue to go on with life the way I'm going. I want what he offers me. And what does be baptized mean? Well, traditions differ on the practicality of that, but baptism is not about whether or not you got dunked underwater or sprinkled as a baby. Baptism means immersion, total connectedness to. It means union. So when people were dunked underwater 2,000 years ago, that was not just like a little graduation ceremony at their church. That was the end of their former life as they knew it and probably a death sentence. It was a public, yeah, I identify with this now and I don't care who knows it. There's a lot of people in front of me right now who have been baptized, but there's been nothing public about your faith in years. And you need to wonder whether or not you actually turned from your former life and are headed in a direction that looks like being a follower of Jesus. It's a new identity. We're gonna celebrate that with over 100 people in a few weeks who are gonna tell their story on this stage and get dunked. But make no mistake about it. The power is not in the dunk that's going to happen down here. The power is in the fact that they're publicly going, I'm not ashamed to say it, Jesus wins, he wins my story, and he can win yours. And then what? Receive the Holy Spirit. All of this happens at once, by the way. This is not a sequential. Okay, first repent. Good. Now, have you been baptized? Okay, good. Now, let's see if we can get the Spirit on this one. That's not how it works. This is an all at once turning, immersion, and filling that God does by grace through faith. So what does this mean for your life? It means if you're here today and you would say, that's exactly what I've chosen to do with my life. I have turned from my sin and trusted in Christ. I believe what he did was sufficient to forgive me and he's who I wanna follow as my rabbi, as my teacher and his power filling me for the rest of my life. If that's you, I wanna give you three promises that you have today and then you can go eat ham or whatever you're gonna do from here, but you're gonna be feeling really good if you know Jesus and if you don't, you're gonna get an opportunity to. What does this mean? Number one, we have real hope. If you've made the decision to make Jesus wins the headline of your life, we have real hope. Acts 2.32, what did Peter say? God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Leave that verse up there, guys. I want them to take this in. We are not celebrating the resurrection of Jesus as a fairy tale 2,000 years ago that we just happened to celebrate because we live in the South and the Bible Belt's kind of still alive and we wanna feel better about ourselves at funerals. We have real hope because 2,000 years ago, people saw him die and then saw him raised and gave their lives sharing testimony to it. I don't believe the resurrection because I grew up in Metro Atlanta, Georgia and happened to land at Roswell Street Baptist Church. I believe in the resurrection because 2,000 years ago, there were people who saw it and testified to it and the trustworthy eyewitness testimony of those who were actually there is how we verify some events historicity. If you treated the resurrection of Jesus the way you treat everything else that you believe to be true about history, there would be no doubt in your mind that this actually happened. 
We have more historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago than we have about any singular historic act of the Greco-Roman era. And the only reason why historians do not verify that for you is number one, because you're not doing your homework in the right places, and number two, because it's about Jesus rising from the dead and the enemy wants to keep this under wraps. I'm here to tell you, there's more evidence to this physically than you think. And if you do an honest interpretation of what's there historically, you will come to this conclusion. Jesus wins. He really did die and he really did rise. This is not false hope. It's not something we want to say to make ourselves feel better about death because we just can't accept the fact that we live and we die. This is real. God created humanity to live forever. Humanity broke away from God because of sin. God made a way through Jesus. He really did die. He really did rise. And you really do have hope. If you've ever been in a hospital room with a body that is decaying in front of you, you need this hope. Because you know there's a part of your soul that knows in that instant, this is not right. This is not how we were created. You know who feels the strongest about that? Jesus who felt that same thing at his friend Lazarus's tomb. It says he wept, he he like snarled with anger. I came to bring death to death. So if he came to bring death to death, why is it still alive? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you you can't ask hard questions. Let's ask a hard question, guys. If Jesus defeated death 2,000 years ago, why are you gonna die? And why am I gonna die unless Jesus comes back? Something buried in what Peter said is that it said he will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. First Corinthians 15 says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So when Jesus returns, death is destroyed in full. But 2,000 years ago, death was destroyed decisively. Here's a good way to think about it. If you've ever wondered, hey, if Jesus died and rose again and it's such a big deal, why are we all dying? If you ever wondered, what's the big deal? It's that his victory was complete but not final. Think D-Day in World War II. If you know anything about history, I'm a big history guy, love studying it. World War II, America storms the beaches of Normandy. Allied powers are now all together, united against the Nazis. Here we go. When we showed up, and I say we because I'm I'm kind of patriotic, and I still, even in a day where people have moved on from patriotism, I choose to be grateful for living in the greatest nation on planet Earth. If it's just me, it's fine. You can cheer. Um, We can be patriotic and Christians. It's great. But when America took that beach, guys, World War II was over, effectively. It was just a matter of time. When enough ground was taken, that all of the enemies would be expelled. That's the last 2,000 years. The kingdom of God taking ground against the kingdom of darkness. When he walked out of that tomb, game over. But we get to be a part of the spread of his kingdom and we have real hope for resurrection. That's number one. Number two, I promise I'm almost done. There's only three because it's Easter. Number two, we have full forgiveness. Did you notice repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins? That doesn't mean that your repentance and your baptism earns you forgiveness. It means when you repent and you're baptized, you're admitting that you have no way of getting back to God unless he forgives you. You have no way of ending up in a right relationship with your heavenly father unless he's the one who bridges the gap. Here's the good news about Easter. The promise is for you and your children. And here's where we fit into the story, guys, because he's talking to a Jewish audience. All who are far off. I love that phrase. It means this isn't just localized to this group of people, this is available to the whole world now. If you don't know where you land in in God's eyes without Jesus, you are one of those who are far off. 
So if you're here today and you're going, I'm not with this Jesus stuff and everybody's so excited and I'm kind of, this isn't like my comfort zone. I just want you to know today, the fact that you don't think it's for you is the reason why you're perfectly, perfectly qualified for God to move in your life in a special way this Easter. All you have to do to be brought to Jesus is admit that you're really far off and in need of his grace. And that forgiveness is full and it's bought because of the blood of Jesus, not because of your effort. That's a quick one. You just need to know today, if you're in Christ, full forgiveness, not partial, not everything you did before you gave your life to Jesus. Then after that, you need to figure your stuff out. No, no, no. It's full, total, complete over the course of a lifetime because we're not saved by effort. We're saved by grace and it's buried in the blood. We have real hope. We have full forgiveness. And number three, we have the Holy Spirit and no one gets excited. It's like a real hope, I need that. Full forgiveness, God knows I need that. We have the Holy Spirit, oh, that's great, that's awesome. Don't know how that works or what that, why is that even important for me? You guys know the New Testament teaches that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you and lives in me if we are in Christ. You need the Holy Spirit because you need help and I need help. We live in a world broken by evil and darkness and sin. And you have a helper who is, the scripture calls him a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have a guarantee that you will be risen with Christ. You also have an adoption on your life. You are a son, you are a daughter of the living God, but you also have a marker from the God of the universe that you belong in his family. And here's the good news. For all of the enemy's efforts to sift you, and the darkness that wants to come against you, if you have the Holy Spirit, they cannot get to your soul. You are covered. So when we opened this building on March 19th, I got in front of you guys and I didn't really know how prophetic what I was about to say was going to be. But I said, hey, you know when the kingdom of God takes new ground, the darkness resists. So we just need to be ready. If you're attached to our church, the attacks are coming. I said that and it's kind of like, oh yeah, we need to be ready. I had no idea. Over the past month, those who are attached to this church, and these are just situations that I'm aware of, we have experienced more demonic oppression and efforts of the darkness against our families, against our marriages, against people's health. I mean, I could stand up here for the next hour and you would be about to fall out of your chair if you knew the random stuff that has been happening over the past month. And then I got to this past Thursday, and I'm not gonna go into the full details of this, but long story short, uh, my wife was driven straight off the road by a car that just literally went into her lane, hit her. She was driving my car. I was two cars in front of her in her car with our three girls, watched the whole thing happen in the rear view window. Her car went barreling off the road into a ditch, smoke coming up everywhere, and that's like the last I saw in the rear view mirror turned around and like scariest 30 seconds of my life and when I got up to the scene and I'm in my head I'm already going to the worst possible place until I see her make direct eye contact with me and just like mouth with her eyes you know married couples how you can do that she's like saying a thousand words and it's like so much fear but so much joy she's like saying with her eyes I'm totally fine totally fine and I just, I don't tell you that story to scare you by any means. I tell you to remind you that life is short and you need to get right with God today if you're not. But I also tell you in that moment, the peace I felt from the Holy Spirit because I'm a child of God is this. The enemy is only able 
to do to me and my family what God allows because I belong to him. And while that's scary and suffering is real, it gives you perfect peace. If we, can we put the three points back on the screen? I just want to sober some of you guys up right here and right now. Can we put those three points back on the screen? If Jesus wins as the headline of your life, you have this. If it's not, you have none of this. Like you have the opposite. You have no hope. You have no forgiveness. And you're like, well, I don't need it because I don't even believe that he exists. Please soften your heart in the presence of the one who created you and you have no help, you are on your own. And so the invitation is so clear on Easter. Do you want the life Jesus has purchased for you? Have you come to a place where you go, I need him, I need all that and more. It's readily available, the tomb is empty, come on, just as you are. But if you walk away from here, hardening your heart and living for yourself, your guilt is on your hands because you have heard a clear articulation of the gospel message of Jesus. And if you deny and persist in your sin, you will be separated from God in the eternal torment of hell. And I do not say that to scare you. I say that because too many preachers are afraid to be honest with you. I just gotta tell you the truth. That's where you're going. I'm not gonna try to persuade you. My job is to present it and leave you to do business with God. We're gonna take communion and find joy in the fact that Jesus is the one who gave us this access. You can get your elements out right now. If you didn't get one at any place where you're sitting, just lift up your hand right where you are and we'll bring those to you. This is for those who have decided to give their lives to Jesus, by the way. If you're not a Christian, you just wanna leave that under your seat and reflect, that's great. But if you wanna come to God, this is your moment. It's a simple prayer. Jesus, I give you my life. For all of us who know Jesus, we remember the night before he died. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. That's what the little cracker and the shot of grape juice means. No power in the physical elements, all the power in the supernatural. If you're a husband, please pray over your wife. Be intentional with this time. We got communion stations around this room. If you want to come kneel and if you want to take a piece of bread and dip it in the juice, you can do that over there. But let's make the most out of these moments in the presence of God and then we'll sing and celebrate.